Welcome to Resource on the Go, a podcast from the National Sexual Violence Resource Center on understanding, responding to, and preventing sexual abuse and assault. I'm Mo, and in this two-part series, I'll be talking with Sid and Deanne about the Mapping Prevention Project, what we did, and what we learned. I'm here with Sid and Deanne from the Mapping Prevention Project, and we're going to start this podcast episode the way we would start all of our mapping prevention meetings, which is with a moment of grounding. Amen. Yeah. 
listening to is a chant from a group that I'm a part of with my brother who was also a part of the mapping prevention group and it's really like a an invitation to the ancestors to be a part of to be a part of what we're doing and to welcome them and also to be remembering our ancestors from where, where we're from and also the ancestors like a welcoming to all ancestors everywhere and we we tried to always start our meetings with with something like that. I like that we're starting off the podcast the same way. It feels really nice. I'm wondering if we can start with what is mapping prevention? Like how did this whole project even get started? So mapping prevention is a project that started in late 2019 in King County, Washington. 
It was rooted in the Coalition Ending Gender-Based Violence, which is a membership organization of domestic and sexual violence uh, service provider organizations in King County. But it was really drawing on the work of a number of advocates, organizers, and activists in King County who were interested in thinking about violence prevention, domestic and sexual violence prevention in in new and different ways and exploring sort of what we know from doing the work. And also we were in the position to apply for some funding that the county had available, which was um, set aside for a planning process, a community planning process to set the structure for a pilot project that the county was going to fund and those pilot and it and the pilot project was you know new new work in gender-based violence prevention and that was sort of how it was set up from the beginning so we were we were able to use those funds to start a participatory action research project that would explore gender-based violence work in our area and I think I'll pass to Dee to let Dee talk about how that sort of built on the longer-term work both of the coalition and 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 our own. We were excited about getting a chance to have some funding to lift up like a lot of the BIPOC and queer and trans programming that had been existing and around for a long time, and not just programming within mainstream nonprofits and domestic and sexual violence organizations, but also just some of the really amazing cultural work that was being done by BIPOC communities for a long, long time in Seattle and in King County. And I think I, I was interested in both like highlighting all of the all of the programs that weren't necessarily doing explicitly prevention work, but were doing like cultural work and then ended up kind of engaged in anti-violence work. There were just a lot of experiences around racism and also homophobia in the, in the mainstream movement. And so I ended up spending just so much of my time at the coalition as the prevention and transformative justice coordinator, talking with people about those experiences and wanting to talk about just the really strong work people were producing, even in light of the oppression they were experiencing. And I love that you were able to bring this into this project. Like this project became something I think different than what was originally intended. Yeah, I don't think <laughs> we could have imagined what we what we were doing before we were doing it. it sometimes people say about transformative justice, it's like you're building the plane while you're flying it. And I a thousand percent feel like that about, about this project just because it was the beginning of the pandemic. And mm-hmm. now it's hard to imagine our lives without Zoom. But at the time, it was hard to imagine our lives and definitely this project inside of Zoom. You know, we imagined that people were going to be like people that had been doing longstanding, like cultural work getting together people that had been advocates for 20 years and like getting to talk to each other in in person and share a meal and become friends. And I, you know, that ended up being different than what we did. Exactly. Yeah. That's a good point. I'm, I think it would be interesting to talk about how you all came together and, and who was involved. And I feel like I should also say that I was part of this project. So not only Mo from NSVRC, but uh, Mo who lives in 
Tacoma and has worked with you both for many years in different capacities. I knew Sid from working on a project many, many years ago at the Northwest Network of Bisexual, Trans, and Lesbian and Gay Survivors of Abuse. And I, I just really saw you, Sid, like bring together, you know, mostly BIPOC, queer, and trans people to talk about resources for trans people in King County. And which, you know, wasn't, was really, felt really scarce. And like, there wasn't a lot of resources and it was sad, you know? And I think that the way you, you actually did it, you brought us together was really hopeful and exciting and also just like nice to be together with people. Yeah, and I was excited about a project about prevention and resistance to the criminal legal system and as a response to domestic and sexual violence being a project that could have research and could have things that we could share afterwards with people beyond our geographical area. Yeah, we weren't um, colleagues there until we came together to work on this project. But I think one of the things that sort of brought us together in a way is that we both were recognizing the, the, the work that we were involved with outside of like the traditional domestic and sexual violence advocacy groups we were trying to work with. When we were working on that um, trans guide, I remember us saying, okay, well, you know, we've been working so hard to try to make these existing organizations safe places for trans people to go. And we couldn't as a group even agree to put most of those organizations into this guide because we did not feel confident enough that we could direct people there. But what we did see is all these arts and cultural spaces and groups people were building and ways of connecting that were really led by trans and queer people and BIPOC trans and queer people. And so the resource guide sort of was full of actual resources, but they weren't, you know, the kinds of resources that I think in our field people think of as resources or think of as violence prevention. And I think in many ways, the project we were doing is trying to make transparent and build and direct funds to these kinds of resources that our, our people have always been building outside of sort of those that are typically sponsored by the state or a county or a local funder even, so. I love hearing the story of how people know each other and how groups come together because we have such a shared history. So I know the project started with a think tank. Can you say more about what that think tank was and why you did it that way? We were directing King County, what kind of programs should they be funding with new prevention dollars? And we knew that People couldn't really be a part of our group that was going to be conducting like the research if or their group was going to be applying for the money. So I we were thoughtful about that and we were able to have some of those people be a part of our think tank. And it was really just an opportunity to ask some questions, kind of like get people talking to each other and sort of share some of our ideas for what we thought we might, what we might do. And some of the things that came out of that were just how tired people were of sort of like telling the county, telling the government what is it that they want, and then definitely not seeing those things happen, but also just not seeing a lot of change happen in what they, what the government always wanted to do, you know, but just like to have checked a box, an opportunity to have heard from community 
and then not really act or move on that. So that was something really resounding. I think the other thing that felt really clear to me was just how in April of 2020, already people were exhausted and overwhelmed by the grief and loss that we had already experienced from COVID at that point. And then simultaneously, real real mass uprising and resistance to um, the carceral system, to the criminal legal system. And, and I think this really big piece around, we had, we had always said, like, we can never reimagine courts. We can never reimagine schools. And there was a literal active building schools while we were, you know, in Zoom, like on everything online all of a sudden. So I think that, that it was just a very particular moment a lot of those pieces. I mean, not that we weren't thinking about those things, but I think just trying to trying to develop that. And we were wanting to create a group for mapping prevention that was majority BIPOC, you know, majority queer and trans, good representation from people in their 20s and under. And why did you want to use a participatory action research approach? There's a long-term pattern in King County, and I imagine this in many other places, the different state agencies sort of approaching community groups and saying, let's just ask you what you need and taking the information that people give and then saying, okay, we're going to use that for our planning purposes and sort of never the community seeing back sort of the results of that or feeling sort of dissatisfied with what was done and feeling like they maybe were exploited for their time, taken advantage of, but also just not heard, essentially. I think that that is the pattern of relations that we heard about when we first thought, even actually before we applied, I think Dee and I were starting to sort of ask people, what would be a good version of this project? Because in a way, what's happening there is the county is trying to get an outside group to go do that work for them, all the outreach. And that is... It was kind of an amazing thing that happened that there was funding available for that process before, you know, there was just decisions made about where the program money should go. So in many ways, it was like extremely exciting and new to have a dedicated funding set aside for a group, an outside group to go and do this work. And at the same time, there was a lot of skepticism about what was being asked then and whether what people said would be listened to. So I think what participatory action research and why I sort of pitched it to Dee and was like, maybe we can do it in this other way where I came to it by setting it up in a way that we are actually creating a team to say, we want to go ask questions and sure, county will give you some feedback from what we learned. But the center of the project is not about you and what you want. The center of the project is about questions that this group wants to answer ourselves. And we have a lot of learning to do ourselves. We want to grow as people who care about prevention. And this is an opportunity for us to go out and build relationships and networks and learn together. So as a person who does research sort of as a job, I think about participatory action research as like an attitude towards research. So I'm thinking, you know, not not about how I can become the expert of the thing, um, but how can we set up a process that makes more and more people have knowledge about a thing. So I think it's also like about more and more expertise, like who who can um, be in charge or who can know things. 
Um, so we knew coming in that a lot of people had a lot of knowledge in our community about prevention and that a lot of the knowledge that was being produced by Black and Indigenous people and people of color and queer and trans people was being sort of erased or not seen as violence prevention that that, uh, and nor funded, <laughs> which was essential to our project, which is like moving resources. We knew that coming in, we knew there was so much knowledge and we were balancing that, I think, at the same time as as being people in those organizations who knew that we were also knowledgeable, but also learners and continuing to be learners and, you know, being humble and being confident, you know, blending those things as we go forward to learn. And so I think at its best, participatory action research is about getting people involved. We're all a part of it. We are doing sort of a systematic look at something. We're like inquisitive and trying to learn something new. And then that course action in the middle that we aren't going to just take that information and move it away from those people who participated, but we're going to try to give it back. And we're going to try to actually make some social change based on what we learn and do together. So we're responsible and accountable to those people who we asked to help us build our knowledge together. I'm really glad that you shared about participatory action research. It was really a great thing to be involved in. What else can you tell me about the Mapping Prevention Group and what actions the group did together? I don't know that I can talk about what Mapping Prevention is without talking about this really amazing, like fierce, phenomenal, you know, super unique group that we came together where we had, you know, reproductive justice activists, we had youth worker, like artists, and and a lot of folks that have been in the anti-violence movement for a long time. So the the art that we produced together, conversations that we had, really led led us to getting to come up with like what the action items were gonna be for the project. And so we did 46 long, you know, and in, in-depth interviews with cultural workers and anti-violence activists, advocates. We really wanted the interviews to be meaningful and connecting and to make sure that what the things that people were asking us about, we got back to them with. So, you know, I would end an interview and have just like a page of notes. And then I would like come back to the interviewee with, you know, what are all the resources around these things? But everybody on the team conducted at least one interview out of, you know, out of those interviews came, yeah, a lot of podcasts and other projects which is pretty exciting. And then we also conducted a survey of over over 600 people. I think like, and we really tried to have a focus of people under the age of 25. I know we had a lot of people in the field that filled out the, the survey and, and a lot of those, half, about half of those people, I think were BIPOC folks. So those are some of the action items. And then, I mean, also we did a really fun event at the at kind of the end of that block party and um, where we had like prizes and music and just like getting to share a couple of breakout rooms on participatory action research and people getting to hear more in-depthly from some of the programs that got funding and then we wrote a really beautiful paper that you know also looks really beautiful <laughs> which to me felt special and not but process was just as important as like what the outcome was. And that was, that was intentional. We would even say like, we want, you know, we want these meetings, we want these events to be something that you come to and you feel better for having come as opposed to like drained and 
sad that you wasted your time. Yeah, as you were providing all those examples, Dee, and I was just sort of remembering, I feel like part of the action was having a community conversation and really promoting a community conversation about what violence prevention looks like outside of criminal justice solutions. And one of the reasons, I mean, that's obviously something that all of us cared about and we're deeply in conversation about already, but we started this project at the beginning of 2020 and it was that spring when you know, George Floyd and Brianna Taylor were killed. And in Seattle, there was a huge conversation about divesting from police. And at the same time, the very familiar sort of go-tos for people in opposition to those ideas, you know, what about domestic and sexual violence? So we really had an opportunity to be as people who've been long interested in preventing domestic and sexual violence and knowing that policing and prisons are not the way to do that, to really use a survey, for example, as a way to get people sort of engaged with the ideas of transformative justice, the preventative side of that, you know, like what would it take for us to have the kind of world in which we were free of violence? You know, what do people need to be able to feel safe? Those are the kinds of questions on there. So even the the survey was about collecting the data, but it was actually much more, I think, about sort of raising the questions and engaging people in those questions. And then we were able to use what people provided back, that in the interviews, to drive the next level of conversation at the Black Party. So I think a big action was that, social media, as Steve was saying. But I think also I don't want to lose that one of the pieces, you know, we had the opportunity to um, shape where the county funds were going to go for these violence prevention pilot projects, as they were calling them. And we could have done a lot of things in terms of taking what we learned and advising the county. And one of the things we decided as a group, which I, I think was really useful and it wound up being successful, though I think we didn't know if it would be was instead of writing a report to them, we literally wrote a request for proposals. We wrote it in the way that they typically write <laughs> requests, requests for proposals. We told them, this is what we think your RFP should look like when it goes out to communities. These are the kinds of projects. These are the kinds of things that we heard people say should be funded. And they wound up essentially using our exact language when it went out. And I we had great partners at the county. So I, I would, <laughs> but if we had just given a report, it would have been up to them to interpret how that should go into that request. And so that was, I think, an action piece that our group decided was really important. And then our report that, that we wrote was also sort of geared towards other kinds of funders in order to elevate sort of the work that we did. This is not just about this one source of funds that's going to potentially come and go but that we wrote something that other, other funders could use to think about where they put resources for uh, gender-based violence prevention. And we already know it's been taken up by some other funders, which is great. Just hearing you both share these examples brings back so many memories. I feel like we're all saying that, like, oh, this is, <laughs> like, I remember being at these meetings and being able to hear the story back about kind of how everything was shaped and how this project and this group was able to be impacted by everything else that was going on around us in the world is really, I think it's a, just a really great example of how a group can come together and be really flexible and, and still have this goal, but kind of build 
as we are meeting and as we are doing things. Yeah, one of the other things that I really loved about this project and and being able to be a part of it and being a part of these conversations is that the idea of prevention, like we were talking about before, was filled with nuance. Like we weren't having just that limited definition of prevention as this idea of stopping violence before it ever has a chance to happen. And so I'm wondering if you could say more about how you're thinking about prevention, like both shaped the project and maybe changed throughout the project. I mean, I, I, I think this is an opportunity to talk about something that I kind of been thinking about of just like, I'm a survivor of multiple forms of violence. I grew up in um, grew up and experienced sexual violence, domestic violence, and I, I think that I, I never really saw this field as a young person as a field that was a place that I could work or like experience healing. I, I think I just really thought that that was for like other people that hadn't had those experiences. And when I started working at a shelter, I was like, oh, actually, my experiences are really helpful, right, for, for doing this work and. And I think at every, at every level as an advocate, doing more prevention and outreach and education work, I sort of, I was trying to figure out how to make a path for like myself and my people and my community and the people that I grew up with. How do we make this movement? If a third to a fourth of like, of women and like, you know, I mean, just the category, there's, it's so massive. There's no way that like the current responses we have could really respond. And so I think that I have really been interested in like figuring out how everybody has to be a part of this movement to end violence and to end oppression. And we can't actually parse out just ending domestic and sexual violence without ending racism and classism and homophobia and all other forms of oppression. Not, you know, like I did not believe that we could use the master's tools to solve this problem. You know, like I did not think that we could use really structured, like mainstream approaches to to fix to fix these issues or to like address them and I I think even when I hear a word like outcomes I get very nervous that we're trying to put really amazing responsive and like fluid responses I guess into like a box right and so I I similarly like having heard par or like research was like very nervous about what that could mean and, and then, you know, for me, like the, the transformation was really around like just seeing how this really was a way to validate and prop up the programs that I saw doing like the most amazing work, right? And the people in the groups that people really need advocates to, to try to write a mock RFP, right? You know, to tell the government, to tell funders, this is how you could write a proposal for for funds in a way that speaks to the most people, right? And I think that that was something I got really interested in and started to understand slowly could happen, right? But I, I do think that it really was a process. And and for me, it was a process that happened while I was doing it, that I was like interviewing people and realizing like, oh, we're going to be able to frame what people are actually saying they need to funders before the funding applications even go out, right? And that was a really um, just different process than than I had been a part of before, having been more on the like program side for most of my like now 20 years in, in the field. 
I think in many ways, this is a nonprofit wide problem, but in domestic and sexual violence advocacy, we and in Key County at least, which I'm most familiar with, there we've been in a trap, like an inclusion trap, right? The idea being that we know a lot of the organizations are sort of founded on principles that are reflective of white supremacy and the gender binary and these are sort of underneath our organizations and we're trying to sort of fix them or repair them or make them better or put more people of color and put more diversity into them right as a way to sort of change them and transform them and of course organizations have also tried to learn from mistakes and adapt and that and that's sort of been like the hamster wheel a little bit and I just saw Dee doing like so much care work for people who are in these organizations and I know Mo you've also done that work just people kind of in sort of the consequences on the people who are working in the organization when that's the wheel you're in and so I think your question about like how are we trying to think of prevention differently was how do we move from the this other center not try to make the organizations that are haven't been sort of meeting the needs of more marginalized people especially multiple marginalized people like how do we actually go to the models and ideas that that are really born out of the communities that are left out of these systems. So I think that was sort of the the move we made. And one of the things I think, you know, one of the first things that happened when we came together as a team is sort of, we need to sit and acknowledge that because we're working, we're doing this based in this coalition, we need to acknowledge the history of racism within the organizations we're sort of centered in. And that that had to be done at the outset to build trust as a group to know where we were moving from as a group one of our members offered a tool that she had used with a lot of other groups and brought that to one of our first meetings and that tool was sort of like what are our anti-racist commitments as a group like what are, what is our understanding as a group of how we're going to move and think about our own commitments and i think that really set us up so well to then ask at every step is what we're doing now reflective of that, that I think, you know, we had already been doing some of the, bringing in some of the cultural work and our ancestors like Dee spoke about. We had already done that a few times, but that moment helped us be like, oh, we're doing this thing. Let's actually continue to do that. Let's have a framework for why we're doing that. Let's talk about that as part of an anti-racist commitment to our meeting culture and how we're moving. And I think that was like real shift and also an example of how, this wasn't about me as somebody as a trained researcher bringing in research tools and saying these are the tools we're going to use it was about saying no all of us have tools we've been using that are useful for research and let's when somebody sees something oh this tool would be useful let's use that you know let's actually kind of merge our tools as a group let's talk about what our next podcast together will cover i know that our second podcast you know is going to focus more on what we found when we had all this amazing data, like the interviews that, you know, 46 interviews with people talking about their work in depth. And we wanted to try to think about what we were learning when we put those interviews together. We saw sort of trends or core ideas that were falling kind of into these four areas. So the four areas that we and talking with people decided kind of kind of worked as categories, although there's lots of overlap. We, we drew it in the report as concentric circles. 
So community and belonging, abolition and transformation, healing and accountability, liberation and agency. But it, it was really helpful for us in especially thinking through the interviews. So those were developed after we after we did all the interviews and we're going through them. I'm really looking forward to our next conversation about this. It's been really fun to talk through this process with you. And I just know that people are going to be really excited to hear about all of the knowledge and wisdom that came from the action items in the project. And it'll be fun to talk with you about it again. So thanks both of you for being here. Thanks for listening to this episode of Resource on the Go. For more resources and information about preventing sexual assault, visit our website at nsvrc.org. You can also get in touch with us by emailing resources at nsvrc.org.